morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup with the Colorado Sun. It's Friday, November 10th. Today, Sun writer and Sunlit editor Kevin Simpson isn't talking to a Colorado author, but he's talking about one of the best you may have never heard of, although you may know the new movie based on one of his novels. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pinnacle Assurance. Pinnacle Assurance is Colorado's top-rated workers' comp provider, according to the businesses and workers they serve. With a commitment to Colorado, Pinnacle invests in workplace safety and provides care to help injured workers recover and return to work safely. Pinnacle. They put care to work. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this date in 1978, President Jimmy Carter signed a bill that created the Continental Divide National Scenic Trail, a hiking path stretching over 3,000 miles from Canada to Mexico. This trail, which traverses the Continental Divide, a geographical ridge that separates Pacific and Atlantic ocean drainages, was envisioned as early as the 1920s. The scenic trail, which includes portions of the Colorado Trail, is still under development and represents both a physical and psychological challenge to adventurers. It runs through 20 Colorado counties, reflecting the state's central role in the trail's ongoing construction and maintenance, and continues to be a major draw for outdoor enthusiasts nationwide. Before we continue, another quick message. AARP Colorado is proud to sponsor this podcast with the Colorado Sun. With Colorado being one of the fastest-growing states in the nation among older adults, AARP Colorado strives to ensure all Coloradans can age in place for as long as possible and age with dignity. Next, our feature story. Welcome to Friday, Colorado. We've got what I think is a really interesting conversation today. We're going to talk with Sunwriter Tracy Ross who is in the midst of reporting a fascinating story about John Williams, uh, an author of great critical acclaim who spent decades teaching in the English department at the University of Denver from 1954 until his retirement in 85. And he died in 1994. But his 1960 novel, Butcher's Crossing, has been hailed as one of the best books about the American West ever written. And now, 63 years later, it's a major motion picture starring Nicolas Cage. So welcome, Tracy. And I got to say, I'm envious that you get to dive into that wonderful intersection of great literature and movies, two of my favorite things. Hey, Kevin. Uh, Yeah, I truly feel bad for you on this one. But can it please be my new sole responsibility? Wish granted. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course, th- now this is uh, a story in progress, our listeners should understand. And, and we're catching you as you're still reporting this. So there will be plenty more beyond our conversation today that folks will be able to read in the sun uh, in the near future. So readers, keep an eye out for Tracy's story that will appear. Well, we're not sure exactly when, but but soon. So. Tracy, when we talked about this podcast, we thought maybe we'd kind of reverse engineer the usual tendency to give a nod to the book and then delve into the film and its more immediate pop culture trappings, and then maybe bounce back and forth a bit. Uh, So let's give a nod to the movie first and work our way backward in time to an author who was anything but obscure. I mean, he won a National Book Award for 
his novel Augustus in 1973. But he's somebody who maybe isn't quite a household name to a lot of folks. Now, I I know you watched the movie. Tell us about it. What's the storyline here? Well, it's a psychological drama built around the rotten core of westward expansion's race to kill off all of the buffalo. And as the New York Times says, it's a parable of greed, arrogance, and humanity's unquenchable thirst for blood, or as I like to call it, heart of darkness meets into the wild. It follows a young, idealistic Harvard dropout who is not entirely unlike Christopher McCandless of Into the Wild, who wants to see more of the country, so he comes west from Boston to fulfill that dream. He hooks up with a small group of buffalo hunters, and they set out for the Colorado mountains. These guys are horrible to him, to each other, to the natural world, but they're getting the job done of laying waste to the buffalo. And then about two thirds of the way through the movie, they find themselves battling a winter storm that moves in on them and keeps them in survival mode throughout the rest of the winter. More darkness ensues and about one half of them survive. Wow. (laughs) So uh, a really upbeat, upbeat movie here. Oh yeah, but I know uh, Gabe Polsky. Uh, Gabe Polsky is a terrific director. I know he um, he did a documentary that came out in 2014 called Red Army, uh, that told the story of the Soviet ice hockey team that lost to the U.S. in Lake Placid in the Olympics, but then went on to dominate the world stage for years after that. But uh, how did Gabe Polsky's treatment of the Western film genre? compared to what we're used to seeing? Well, um, first, I'd like to say briefly that I WhatsApped with Polsky yesterday, and he was in remotest Mexico. So it was fun to like, have there be a massive snowstorm and talk about this, the movie and know that he was probably like, you know, hanging out with like, baby turtles somewhere. But anyway, the movie, um, it's stark. (laughs) Yeah. It's starker than any Western I've ever seen, I think. Um, And it's about as faithless and godless as you can get. Kind of what you'd expect if Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian were made into a movie, which actually I just read is being adapted into a film. Um, That was that's pretty recent news. So we can look forward to more depressing bloodletting from him here soon. But Butcher's Crossing um, isn't just concerned with the usual tropes of the genre, the railroad, the lone wolf, the standoff. It's about the darkness that exists in men and eventually corrupts them. But everything is reckoned with in this landscape that very clearly does not care for them. So it's, you know, I feel like Westerns can be kind of schlocky sometimes and predictable, mainly. And this was not that. It, it it was disturbing, for sure. Um, Let There Be Blood kind of comes to mind. Um, but it, 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 it was very gripping, and the starkness kind of made me think about things in a way that I haven't in other Westerns. And I have to say, the scene in which Schneider is killed was pitch perfect. Just amazing. I'm not going to reveal. And then my only criticism was that casting Nicolas Cage in the lead was a terrible idea. It's the voice. You know what I mean. <laughs> well, you know, actually, when we talked about that earlier, I did a, a quick YouTube search for uh, Nicolas Cage best scenes and lines and found some coll- collections on YouTube that are just hilarious. Really gives you a good overview of his career. But anyway, on, on a five-star scale, what rating would you give the movie and why? 
I feel kind of bad about this because I want to love all art, um, especially when I, you know, connect with the maker. But as much as I loved how bad it made me feel, um, which I would give it a three, four, <laughs> I think overall 2.5, 2.8, only because the plot was a little floaty for me. Like it kind of um, moved around. I don't know. It did, there wasn't like a ton of connective tissue. And the characters seemed a little underdeveloped. Okay, fair enough. Now, it's often said that the, the book's usually better than the movie. So let's take a little closer look at author John Williams. Uh, what can you tell us about his background? Who's the guy behind the book, behind the movie? Yeah, he's pretty fascinating. I mean, for somebody that I've never heard of, and I read a lot, and... Um, you know, I follow I follow Colorado writers. I follow writers of the world, and I had never heard of him, and I feel bad about that. But um, he was a poet, uh, an artist. He was University of Denver. Is that what it is, or Denver University? Which is it? Yeah, Uni University of Denver. D okay. and then they call it DU. So <laughs> yeah, he was their creative writing professor and co-founder of the university's literary magazine, the Denver Quarterly, in nineteen. 66. And it's pretty cool. It's the oldest continuously publishing literary, literary arts journal west of the Mississippi. I love anything west of the Mississippi. And I love saying that I love things west of the Mississippi. So um, that, that's a pretty cool uh, <laughs> dis di distinction. Um, he also grew up in a farming family in Texas. He served two and a half years as a radio operator in World War, World War II. And he graduated from DU's um, Bachelor's of Arts and Master's of Arts programs on the GI Bill, which is also pretty cool. Um, this makes me really happy. He featured my all-time favorite writer, Joan Didion's work in the magazine. It was a short story called, When Did Music Come This Way? Dear Children, <laughs> Was It Yesterday? Which, can we take a second to acknowledge just how 60s that title is? <laughs> um, yeah, that was published in 1967. Anyway, uh, like Didion, Williams was a powerhouse of a writer. He published Butcher's Crossing in 1960, Stoner, which the New York Times called the perfect novel, quote, so well told and beautifully written, so deeply moving that it takes your breath away in 1965, and Augustus, as you said, in 1972, which won the National Book Award for Fiction. He wrote books of poetry, he wrote essays, and he had some serious chops that he's still being rec recognized for today. But as Marissa Olveda Maldonado wrote in the Quarterly in 2021, some of Williams' work was troubled with sexism, racism, and ableism, which two students critiqued um, pretty pretty seriously. It was it was good to to call out that stuff. Um, but the Quarterly used this as an opportunity to pat itself on the back a bit, saying it underscored the journal's commitment <laughs> to diversity, equity, and inclusion that requires ongoing activism on all levels of our community. Well, you know, I, I, I got to say, I'm with you. Uh, I, I read a fair bit, uh, and I had not heard of John Williams, and I was kind of embarrassed about it as I you know read about the movie and then the book behind it, and then, you know, the author of the book and, and you know, how well-regarded he was. So I, you know, immediately ordered the book, got it uh, the next day. Uh, I have not had uh, a chance to read the whole thing, but I did, you know, I opened it up just to start reading, just, you know, randomly opened it up, started reading. And 
yeah, sure enough, the guy has uh, some major writing chops. It's uh, you know, it's he's an amazing craftsman uh, with the language, which uh, you know his uh, awards would certainly suggest. But you know, the edition that I got uh, included uh, an introduction by Michel uh, Latillet who was a student under John Williams at DU in the early 80s and now teaches at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, She wrote the introduction for this late 1980s edition, and she's got a nice story about her interaction with Williams at DU. I I think I'll let, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, I really liked that too. Um, and I'm with you. I need to. I need to do a deep dive into the book. But basically, uh, Latiole is a new grad student at DU, and in her words, she's uh, simpering, which I love that word. She's like this insecure, simpering writer who just is like dying to talk to any any professor who will talk to her. And she's sitting in her office, and um, she had come to DU specifically to study with Williams after he won the National Book Award for Augustus. And she's sitting there and he comes into her office and dumps a pile of books on her desk, telling her to ignore what she'd learned, that books will teach her everything she needs to know. I found that um, like dream, dream world stuff, because I think when uh, an established author gives a student that kind of feedback, you know, he called her, he said she was unteachable. And I mean... I think at first you could be like, oh, that's that's kind of an insult. But he meant it, I believe, as like the highest compliment. And I don't know about you, but that directive from someone like him sounds like heaven to me. You know, just basically read books. You got this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, he, he did mean it. I think you're right in the in the best possible way. Uh, you know, I. I think she touches on Butcher's Crossing in a, a very deep literary sense in the introduction. And she seems to see his approach as more of a dissection of the Western genre. Uh, in fact, you know, this was the only Western he wrote among his uh, novels, uh, but rather than an example of the Western genre. What, what did you take away from her introduction? She touched on a lot of bases there. Yeah. Well, I think um, before I answer that, one thing that was interesting in my back and forth with um, Polsky last night was he does not like the uh, distinction of this movie as a Western. It it makes him uncomfortable because he thinks it will, um, it sets people up for for certain expectations that he did, did, I think intentionally did not deliver in this film. But anyway, um, as far as, as far as her, um, you know, what she wrote about Butcher's Crossing in the book, I think personally, I love anyone who sets out to dismantle paradigms that like everyone accepts seemingly because they're too lazy or scared to think or experience or experiment beyond them. So I was really moved hearing her describe Williams, quote, goading of Emersonian transcendentalism, its promise of the good and truth and beauty found only in nature because it showed him to be someone who wasn't afraid to do that dismantling. And he's not afraid to poke holes or inverted volcanoes into all of the beliefs baked into the West, westward expansion, the tropes of young men going West, which I think we're all 
I mean, those of us who are thinking people are, you know, culturally having a moment with and reckoning with and kind of seeing through what they what they presented themselves to be to what they really were, which was terrible on many levels. And I, I think her examination of his treatment of cliche should also be required reading before anyone sees the movie because you get a more nuanced understanding of what you're watching, which is an artist at work, both enhancing and dismantling a genre. Yeah, and you know, Ladiolet notes that Williams was writing Butcher's Crossing just as the U.S. was beginning its presence in Vietnam. And she extrapolates from that a bit and has an interesting line in her introduction that I just want to quote here. She said, Butcher's Crossing is a novel about a young man who sets out to find himself, but it is also the story of a young country violently insisting on itself, mindless of the consequences. So it it seems like there's an element of national character or perhaps lack thereof writ large in the context of the book. And so now bouncing back to Hollywood here, did you see that reflected in the movie as well? I mean, if you hadn't brought it up, I wouldn't say that I have seen it. (laughs) Certainly wasn't blatant in any way. And I feel like that was part of the pacing of the movie. Like in some ways with the movie, there wasn't enough. There was a little too little unpacking and that could have been unpacked a little bit more. And I guess, you know, I see it in the context of other Westerns that have dwelled on American exceptionalism. In Butcher's Crossing, our Americanism is sort of divided between the Emersonian ideal and frontiersman brutality. And Will, the central character, the Chris McCandless person, is the consciousness of this battle, in my opinion. And, you know, so when he comes away from this very harrowing experience where he does see the heart of darkness in these men that he's with, you know, he, he is the answer, the complicated answer to that problem. And I won't give away what happens, but he does hook up with um, the prostitute in the movie who he loves in the beginning and couldn't actually hook up with in the beginning. (laughs) And I'm not sure what that says, but maybe it's carnal love solves everything. (laughs) (laughs) That could be. That could be. Well, you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you've been in touch with the director, Gabe Polsky. What are some of your takeaways from your WhatsApp conversation with him? He kind of said all the things you would kind of expect a a director of a movie like this to say. which is to say, you know, he, he put a lot of kind of it back on to the viewer and, you know, the viewer will take away what the viewer takes away. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he said he talked to William's widow a bit during the process of making the movie. And she told him that Butcher's Crossing was, an auto, was autobiographical in a way and that it related to William's experience in war and seeing death and killing, which is... You can completely see that in the movie. And then just, you know, his experience of the nature of men. And I I have a 22-year-old 
who's been working in the fishing industry for five years going up to Alaska. And he's actually working on a book about that very thing. And I think, uh, you know, the story of a young man going into a world of men is such a rich topic because the question arises, what kind of man do I want to be? And that wasn't blatant in the movie, but you know, it brings up that question. So, um, you know, I, that, I thought that was pretty interesting to, to get that kind of insight from Polsky. Um, it connected me to Williams a bit more. And then, yeah, like I said before, I thought it was interesting that Polsky doesn't like it when people call the movie a Western, although he didn't say what he wanted them to call it. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting. I think when a, a director uh, feels compelled like to reach out to either the, you know, the author, if the author is living or, uh, in this case, to to the author's widow, um, it's it's interesting how there's that connection or that through line from the, the literature to the the film itself. And, and Tracy, this is all fascinating stuff, and, and I'm thrilled that we've got uh, even more to look forward to as you uh, continue working on this story. And so, uh, listeners, we've been talking with Sun reporter Tracy Ross whose look at Butcher's Crossing, both the, the new film starring Nicolas Cage and looking at longtime University of Denver professor and renowned author John Williams, who wrote the book on which it's based, uh, is coming soon. So keep an eye out for that one. And thanks for joining us, Tracy. Thanks for letting me sneak away from my other duties, Kevin. Have a good day. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Denver boasts what could be the fastest internet network in the world this week. The amazing feat is thanks to a temporary 6.71 terabits per second network, more than 30,000 times faster than the average U.S. household connection. It's been set up at the Colorado Convention Center to help power a supercomputing conference known as SC23. The international event draws a who's who of players from the high-performance computing industry, all focused on the search for faster ways to transmit data. Topics range from artificial intelligence to quantum computing to a project involving CERN's Large Hadron Collider, the world's largest particle accelerator. Soil contaminated by PFAS sits in drums at Shriver Space Force Base in Colorado Springs, the legacy of decades of firefighting foam runoff at airstrips around the world. Next year, six companies will start roasting, washing, mixing, and treating that soil in the $3.5 million side-by-side technology experiment run by the Colorado School of Mines. They are looking for the best method to treat the forever chemicals, which were also used for everything from waterproof clothing to nonstick kitchenware. Governor Jared Polis is calling a special legislative session to cut property tax rates and blunt the impact of skyrocketing home values awaiting homeowners next year. The session will begin Friday, November 17th, and last at least three days. That puts pressure on lawmakers to reach a deal quickly or risk interrupting their Thanksgiving holiday. The announcement comes after voters overwhelmingly rejected Proposition HH, the sprawling property tax relief and school funding measure backed by Polis. The initiative was aimed at combating a 40% increase in property values that would cause a corresponding jump in property tax bills next year. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. The Colorado Sun is nonpartisan and completely independent. We're always dedicated to telling the in-depth stories we need today more than ever. And the Sun is supported by readers and listeners like you. 
Right now, you can head to coloradosun.com and become a member, starting at $5 per month for a basic membership, and if you bump it up to $20 per month, you'll get access to our exclusive politics and outdoors newsletters. Thanks for starting your morning with us, and don't forget to tune in again tomorrow.